The opinions expressed in the Palace of Glittering Delights are mine and mine alone. No one would be stupid enough to hold them. The things discussed in the Palace of Glittering Delights may lead to spoilers if you have not seen the topic of today's episode. There may also be occasional ranting and swearing. Don't say I didn't warn you. Michael Bailey and I recently had occasion to discuss some post-crisis era Superman comics. For one of his excellent podcasts, it all comes back to Superman. This deep dive with a man almost single-handedly responsible for keeping the flame of this particular era of Superman comics alive lit a fire under me, and I took the plunge myself, swimming deep and indulging in the treasures of this particular era. It dawns on me that there's an awful lot to infer from that opening paragraph. Some listeners may not have the slightest clue what I'm banging on about when I say things like post-crisis or this era of comics. So a brief interlude. In 1986, DC Comics decided to relaunch and reinvigorate their line of characters, some of whom were nearing 50 years old. To make you feel your age, some of those characters are now over 80. For Superman, DC decided to attempt something drastic and new, something that was groundbreaking, something unique. Well, it was unique when they did it, it's been a tried a lot since then. They would restart the Superman line of comics from the very beginning. Everything old was new again. For this initiative, they coined the term Reboot. From little acorns do mighty oak trees grow. Popular comic book writer and artist John Byrne, who'd risen through the ranks over at Marvel Comics on characters such as the X-Men and the Fantastic Four, was hired, and Superman's hard drive was reformatted and he was loaded up with new software. Largely, this was just an upgrade. He was still Kal-El, lone survivor of the planet Krypton, rocket to Earth as a baby where he was adopted by the small-town couple of Martha and Jonathan Kent and raised as their own child, Clark. The changes were mostly to make the character more down-to-earth. He no longer had a massive arctic fortress. He lived down the street from Lois Lane, a reporter he had a crush on. He still worked at the Daily Planet as a crusading investigative reporter and still had powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. However, he wasn't godlike anymore. Yes, he could fly, bench-press a tank, and was more powerful than the average burr, but he couldn't travel through time. He was no longer able to fly through space or underwater for great periods of time without breathing apparatus. And he still didn't seem to realise that glasses as a disguise wasn't terribly practical. You can see right through glasses. Byrne had updated the origin slightly, changed the relationships with the other characters somewhat, kept the Kents above the dirt and focused on the man rather than the super. It was this latter change that was probably the most revolutionary. Over the two years John Byrne stayed with the character, he worked on many Superman comics, the equivalent of six years' worth. By the end, he was tired. Some may even say, burned out. He left. When he left Superman in 1988, Byrne was one of the very few comic superstars. 
the kinds of big-name talent who take their audience with them from project to project. I followed him, for example, from the Fantastic Four to Alpha Flight to The Thing, backwards to his X-Men comics and his run on Marvel team-up, before going forward again to She-Hulk, Avengers West Coast and even Wonder Woman, before his star waned in my eyes and I stopped. He was, unlike Finn, a genuine big deal. And, as with his other books, when Byrne left, I normally left with him. But I didn't this time. I liked Superman as a character. I'd liked him long before Byrne got his hands on him. So I was predisposed to sticking around for a bit, seeing how things shook out. After all, whilst Byrne was seen as the man who revamped Superman, he didn't do it alone. Writer, artist Jerry Ordway launched the new Superman with Byrne, and he was sticking around. Plus, other comics creators like Dan Jurgens and Roger Stern and Art Adams and Jim Stalin had developed stories during the Byrne era, and new writers were coming aboard. I'd have to stick around, check out what was happening, you know, give it a few months. I hadn't read a lot of these comics in years. My discussion with Michael brought the memories flooding back. From the bookshelf, I pulled off... Come on, guys. My nice, hard-backed versions of Byrne's run and powered through them. These were good comics, mostly single-issue stories, but with character arcs and character developments that carried over into the next issue and beyond. I then reached the most controversial story in John Byrne's storied run, the Supergirl saga. Now, Lucy, you got some splaining to do. Okay. Supergirl was killed in a galaxy-spanning event published by DC Comics in 1985 called The Crisis on Infinite Earths. This is why this era, the Burn reboot, is called the Post-Crisis Era. Didn't think I'd circle back to that, did you? Alright, what follows is going to be incredibly simplified. In the Supergirl saga, Supergirl was a shape-shifting being created from the genetic matrix of another universe's Lana Lang. In this other universe, Lex Luthor, who was still around as Superman's biggest pain in the posterior in our universe, was a good guy who had inadvertently let loose three criminals from the Kryptonian jail cell known as the Phantom Zone. These three criminals, the comics equivalent of General Zod, Non and Ursa from the Superman movies, were more powerful than Superman and had laid waste to the planet Earth of this other universe. During the battle, Superman was able to remove their powers thanks to a substance called Gold Kryptonite. There are many different varieties of Kryptonite, just go with it, and was then left with the dilemma of what to do about them. After all, if they regained their powers and found a way to our universe, as Superman had done in reverse, even Superman would not be able to stop the rampage of destruction. Well, not without a cellophane S-shield anyway. Superman, with no humans left to make the decision, took the hard line. He acted as judge, jury, and yes, executioner, killing the three Kryptonian criminals with green kryptonite. I said just go with the kryptonite thing. Now, we can argue that green kryptonite wouldn't kill depowered Kryptonians, but as green kryptonite doesn't really exist, and nor do Kryptonians for that matter, it doesn't matter what it does. If this story says this brand of the many multicoloured strands of kryptonite can kill a depowered Kryptonian, then that's what it does. I mean, at least it wasn't pink kryptonite, which does exactly what you think it does. 
I'm not kidding. Nitpickery aside, and let's acknowledge at the moment that comic books were doing multiverses of madness long before the movies, this was not a moment arrived at lightly. Superman agonised about it. Properly. Not like when TV cops shoot people and then pretend to care about it for 45 minutes before the credits roll. Superman was devastated by this decision. This was no mere in the heat of the moment. It's him or me. I have no choice moment of fake drama. This was epoch making. And then Byrne left. He didn't follow up on this massive story. He abandoned ship with Act 1. This is like if Shakespeare had quit Hamlet after Act 2 and another writer had to finish the story and instead decided to focus on Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Although weirdly, the other creatives left to carry the can did exactly that. See, this story was so affecting, so characterful, so full of that wonderful kind of melodramatic angst that only comics can pull off on this scale. I had to carry on reading, both then and now. So off I scurried to my comics, pulling out, really, the next year's worth or so's worth of stories. It was easy. I don't keep my comics in bags. I whip them out. We're better than this, guys. And read them. I started immediately as Byrne left, with Adventures of Superman issue 445 and Superman issue 23, both published in October slash November of 1988. Both these issues follow on directly from the Supergirl saga, and you'd barely know Byrne was gone. Whilst the aforementioned Jerry Ardway had worked with Byrne on the scripts, he'd been drawing the Adventures of Superman since the relaunch, so initially nary a beat was missed. Headhunter sees Jimmy Olsen investigating a missing person named Pete Schumacher. Pete had been a semi-regular for a while, and this development showed how much the creative teams were embedding their stories in the everyday developments of the lives of the characters. All the characters. Jimmy wasn't just Superman's pal anymore. He was a living, breathing, three-dimensional person with a life, a personality and ambition. His mum was a MILF, Burley in her late 30s. She didn't want him doing this dangerous job that he was doing. His emotions were being toyed with by Cat Grant, gossip columnist extraordinaire. And he had an off-on relationship with Lois Lane's sister, Lucy. I sure hope he gets a chance to shine in a movie someday. Hmm. Headhunter, as I mentioned, was the title. And it's such a good story that you don't even notice Superman isn't in it much. The main focus of the first half is Jimmy's investigation into Pete's disappearance. There's also scads of character development. Newspaper editor Perry White encourages Jimmy to go after the story if he thinks there's one there, whilst also offering sage wisdom to Cat Grant, who is a single mother and, despite her protestations, clearly an alcoholic. Inspector Henderson is the chief of police of Metropolis. A kind of Commissioner Gordon, if Gordon wasn't hopped up on caffeine and adrenaline all the time, fretting over the Riddler's latest cryptic crap fest. He helps Jimmy with the story, largely because no one really cares if a transient goes missing, so there's no money in the cop's budgets to pursue the investigation. Elsewhere, former vigilante Jose Delgado, who was Metropolis's version of Batman, named Gangbuster, only less Dracula and more American Football Hall of Famer, is struggling with his vigilante career, leaving him in a wheelchair. He's in the friend zone with Lois Lane, which I'm sure inspired a Spin Doctor's song. I wasn't kidding when I said they went all Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. 
The man kidnapping the homeless people turns out to be Brainiac, only not the Brainiac of the old days. This Brainiac is Milton Fine, a stage magician with an alien living within him. Like if Bill Bixby in The Magician and Ray Walston in My Favourite Martian were the same character in a different show called My Favourite Magician. Fine, or Viral Docs, as his alien name would have it, needs the bodies to develop an organic serum to stave off Fine's rejection of Docs. Essentially, he's doxing him. When Jimmy and Cat call foul of Docs slash Fine slash Brainiac, Superman finally shows up. What has caused the Man of Steel to show up 11 pages late for his own comic? Well, he's been sitting in the dark, bemoaning his lot in life and generally feeling useless and outdated. It doesn't help that after this is all over, he's told by a paramedic that he should have just killed Fine. Be done with it. This Superman is in a dark place, suffering a severe form of depression, with the writer studying mental health nearly 35 years before everyone else would be talking about it. But you know what? This was a damn good comic. Great art, great story, great characters. If it was any greater, it'd be cheese. Superman issue 23 wraps up some more loose ends from the burn run and welcomes writer Roger Stern with an art job from Hellboy creator Mike Mignola. Stern is one of the most underrated comic book writers of the time, so he was a welcome addition to the growing roster of talent. But overall, this issue was only Milton Fine. Clark receives a book from the Batman that seems to foretell future events, with pages being written even as the reader looks at it. It leads Clark, as Superman, to Lois and Jimmy, who are at Castle Bruin in the North Channel between Ireland and Scotland. Terrible phonetic accents abound as our heroes investigate the Silver Banshee, an Irish woman named Siobhan McDougall who has worked some hoodoo to inherit the curse of the Banshee after being told that as a woman she can't lead the clan. Given that her name is a mixture of cliched Irish and Scottish names, it's no wonder that she's confused. This issue feels like what it is, a wrapping up of the Silver Banshee story. It's a perfectly fine meat and potatoes Superman story with great art, but it's full of gobbledygook mysticism of a kind that just makes my eyes glaze over. Speaking of glazing over, I don't have Adventures of Superman, issues 446 or 447. No idea why. So we'll jump straight into Superman issue 24, which sees artist Kerry Gamble join Roger Stern. Gamble is a great artist. For the life of me, I will never understand why, unlike Finn, he never became a bigger deal. He's very similar to John Byrne, making him an excellent replacement, but he's not a slavish clone. Power politics is yet another tying up of Byrne's loose ends. In a previous issue, a scientist named Kitty Faulkner was working on a project to develop pollution-free energy. This being a comic, it all went spectacularly wrong, and Kitty was caught in the heart of an explosion of Kitty's energy actualizer, causing her to change into a gold Amazon named Rampage. In this sequel, Kitty is being offered help, not only by Perry White and the Daily Planet, who sponsored the event that led to the accident, but Tom Moyer, Kitty's dubious lab partner, who offers her a cure for the energies that are killing her. Of course, it also ends up being a job for Superman. In subplot land, Senator Forrest is running for president, and Superman wants nothing to do with this typically oily, well-groomed, but shady politician. 
Both plots collide when Moya dupes Kitty into transforming back into Rampage, and he has her sabotage Forrest's campaign. Again, this issue is fun, but it keeps us away from the main story, Superman's PTSD. The biggest, most fantastical thing about this story nowadays is the public can be shown that a politician is lying through his teeth and then they would turn their back on them. Would that that were true. In rereading these comics, I realised I took for granted how much they built upon what had gone before. But in such a way as to never feel too mired in continuity, or that you're missing out if you've not read an issue. There's two issues there I didn't read. I still understood everything that was going on. The Superman line at this point only really has two comics. The Adventures of Superman and Superman, making this easier for the editor to coordinate. But also meaning that creatives don't have as much room to juggle the various plot lines. And there are many, many plot lines. Let us count the ways. Clark Kent, Superman, is suffering depression and PTSD from his recent murder of the Kryptonian villains. Lois Lane is nursing back to health Jose Delgado, who has lost the use of his legs due to being injured, playing the vigilante known as Gangbuster. Jose has also been offered those legs back in a deal with Lex Luthor at LexCorp. Professor Emil Hamilton is also interested in Delgado, and he has his own issues with Lex. Lex's shady dealings not only include Delgado, but also Brainiac, who he thinks he has under his thrall. Brainiac can somehow monitor Superman's well-being and knows all is not well. Lois is not really on speaking terms with Clark or Superman after learning from Jonathan Kent that they are essentially adopted brothers. A silly subplot that will be ignored and then forgotten about as the strip moves on. She is also unsure of her feelings for Clark slash Superman and Jose is also developing romantic inclinations toward her. Jonathan and Martha Kent are raising the Matrix blob who was Supergirl whilst being worried about Clark's mental health issues. Catherine Grant is also having her own issues and is in an off-again, on-again relationship with Lex's rival Morgan Edge whilst also working for the Daily Planet. Dr Amanda McCoy, presumably a distant relation of Dr McCoy, given he named his daughter after her, is working with a PI named Matt Stockton. Amanda knows Clark is Superman after Lex tasked her with finding the connection between them both. Sadly, Lex thought the idea of Superman pretending to be a mere mortal was as dumb as a squirrel trying to work out algebra, and he fired McCoy. She is now seeking her own truth. None of this includes other semi-regular characters and their dilemmas like Jimmy Olsen, Perry White, Inspector Henderson, Maggie Sawyer, Terrible Turpin and the Special Crimes Unit, and background characters like Wit and Alice, and they're not even mentioning the Cadmus Project and Guardian and the Newsboy Legion and... Wait a minute, who the f*** is Alice? If you get that gag, I'll buy you a pint. Anyway, that's a lot to juggle. Superman issue 25 continues the Brainiac Luther plot, but focuses more on Superman. The conflict over what he did is causing Clark to lose sleep, and various parts of this issue are real head trips, coincidentally the title of the story. Clark has multiple dreams within dreams here, some of which seem crushing Lex into a wall, throttling Brainiac till his eyeballs pop out of his skull, and murdering Lois Lane. Some of this is due to Brainiac's mind monitoring, and even Brainiac seems a little scared by the Man of Steel's fractured psyche. The confrontation ends in Brainiac's seeming death, 
But Lex will find out that this was all an illusion, and Brainiac now controls LexCore. This issue was much better than the last couple, more focused on the main storyline rather than mopping up the plate of Burns' leftovers. This clash of wills between Brainiac and Luther is wonderful to behold. These two massive egotists and cheaters forced into a game of one-upsmanship. It's like when two silverback gorillas fight it out for their mate, who watches disinterestedly because she's busy shagging the chimpanzee with the nice eyes. Superman's new hesitance and worry is actually getting in the way of him being able to do his job, as we shall see in Adventures of Superman issue 448 by Jerry Ordway and Dennis Janke. The Ledge sees Superman try to talk down a career criminal from committing suicide, but his devotion to all life now sees a far more timid and unsure Superman, who simply leaves the jumper. Fortunately, just after Superman leaves, Gangbuster arrives. Gangbuster is far more proactive than Superman, almost chucking the jumper off the building. But who is this new masked man? Jose Delgado, now blessed with working legs again thanks to LexCorp? Is it P.I. Matt Stockton, who never seems to be around when Gangbuster is? Or is it a mysterious third party? All of these questions are put on the back burner as we welcome DC Comics' crossover event for 1988, Invasion. Invasion will form part of the background to Adventures of Superman issues 449 through 450 and Superman issues 26 and 27. The basic plot sees a group of big-toothed aliens arrive on Earth and decide to take it over, announcing their presence by overrunning Australia. Which is a shame, as, like Lex Luthor, I quite like Australia. Granted, if they'd taken over Russia, no one would have known the difference. Superman's role happens mainly in the Invasion comics themselves, so we needn't concern ourselves with any of that. What we can concern ourselves with is the deepening subplots. The mystery of Gangbuster deepens as we see him becoming more and more savage, with more clues being laid out as to the nature of his true self. This Gangbuster is very strong, capable of performing feats no mortal man could pull off, and plagued by a buzzing headache. He survives being rammed by the runaway whiz-wagon, vehicle of choice driven by the newsboy Legion. He's also brushed off a seven-storey fall into a dumpster. The latter is caused by Guardian, the heroic Captain America type who works out of the Cadmus Project with the newsboys. Gotta be honest, whilst there's a lot going on here to enjoy, even I thought the whole Cadmus slash newsboy Legion slash Guardian stuff was a bit much. Like having that second helping of red velvet cake. Sure, it's tasty, but it leaves you too stuffed to move later on. Guardian's fight with Gangbuster reveals the secret. Gangbuster is Superman. The trauma of the execution, the buzzing in his head caused by Brainiac's mental intrusion, and his general malaise have caused Superman to create a new persona, one more aggressive and immediate. Superman, astounded, takes action cashing in some favours with Professor Hamilton and Kitty Faulkner to acquire a deep space breathing unit. Elsewhere, Jose Delgado learns the dangers of dancing with the devil when his legs, indeed his entire body, suddenly become puppets of Lex Luthor. And Amanda McCoy steps up her investigation of Clark Kent. Even as overstuffed as this is with the addition of the Cadmus material, this is masterful comics writing. Knowing where all this was leading shows just how magnificent 
the creatives in this era were at seeding what they were doing. Gangbuster's secret is obvious in hindsight, but they play just fur enough with the reader. All the clues are there. Amanda McCoy and Matt Rushton are heading for some kind of fall. Again, a really obvious one when you've read ahead, but not so obvious in the moment. Over at the Kent farm, more clever developments are happening with Matrix as they start to learn more and more about Clark Kent as they learn and grow. Superman spends the night there. After his evening with the farm, he decides, having witnessed the end of the world as he knows it, it's time he had some time alone. After a tearful farewell, he takes the breathing apparatus and heads off into deep space. A nice touch from artist Jerry Ordway here is that this splash page echoes the splash page of Man of Steel number one, the issue that launched this reboot upon the world. Now, one could argue that the past few months have been wheel spinning, waiting for the invasion crossover to get out of the way so the creative teams can get on with the story they want to tell, Superman dealing with his trauma. But I would argue this is not so. Superman and Clark needed this extra time. Trauma doesn't happen overnight, nor is it dealt with in moments. Saying get over it to someone struggling is not only unhelpful, it's potentially damaging. We needed to see how far down this rabbit hole Superman had fallen before he felt the need to get away from it all and try to claw his way back out, really explore his feelings on the matter of killing and its impact. The exploration of this idea and its aftermath is what separates this from stories where killing is easy or done on a whim with little exploration of its effects on the soul. Superman in Space, or Superman in Exile, begins in Superman issue 28. After standing upon an asteroid, looking at Earth for a bit, Superman uses his teleportation device built into the breathing apparatus, which is a real stroke of luck, to venture out where no Superman has gone before. Mostly this is Superman taking tentative steps into his new reality. Over the next couple of issues, he'll visit dead planets, which further rub salt in his emotional wounds. He bounces too near to a star, which nearly ends his trip real quick, and then features another echo of Man of Steel 1, when Superman arrives at a planet of little pink aliens and prevents a rocket ship crash. Their immediate adulation reminds him too much of the people of Earth, and he leaves, alone again, naturally. It's all good, meaty character stuff, essentially telling Superman what he will be doing is dangerous and unknowable, and that maybe he should just turn around and deal with his issues at home, but he's not really up for that conversation just yet. Superman issue 29 and Adventure of Superman issues 452 are by writer-artist Dan Jurgens and inker Brett Breeding. Jurgens would go on to join the team later on, but for now was presumably helping them hit their deadlines. The story is a sequel to Adventures of Superman Annual Number 1 and sees Superman return to the planet of the Pink People only to find the planet dead and the population gone. How can this be? He was only there a few days ago. Again, it's a pretty good Star Trek-style story about how, be it man or alien being, the need to be free is a right. He finds that they have been taken by Union, a pompous alien who takes people and uses their brains as part of his race. They are given virtual immortality, but they didn't give their consent. Superman, horrified, remembers a similar occurrence on Earth that, by pure coincidence, Lois Lane is investigating after that previous incident finally became unclassified. 
Superman convinces Union to no longer take lives unless they agree to be a part of the Union. These really feel like a helping hand story, which is what they are. As such, there isn't a lot of movement in the subplot, although Lois, who has been given short shrift recently, serving only as an adjunct to Jose Delgado's story, is given some meaty scenes. Seeing her back as a tenacious reporter is a great deal of fun. There's a lot of Amy Adams' version of the character in this story. It's a fun two-parter that doesn't feel like too much of a detour. The Kents, following Clark's instructions, have been sending Perry Clark's dangerous expose of Intergang, Metropolis's criminal underworld, with connections to major players in the city. Perry has been told that, due to the nature of this expose, Clark will be deep underground for a while. Morgan Edge is one of those major players, and he orders a hit on Clark Kent. Meanwhile, Lex tries to control Brainiac, which isn't going well, but Brainiac is also out of sorts, realising that Superman has gone. With that, his mental connection is severed. Lex is knocked off his axis by this news. He never realised how much he needed the challenge Superman presented him to make him feel alive. It's interesting how the story's been set up to show a number of the main characters being unhappy at the choices they've made in life and where those choices have brought them. Very relatable. This is also applicable to Jose Delgado, whose choices have left him in the thrall of Lex Luthor. The big development here is Professor Hamilton helps Delgado to throw off Luther's control whilst broadcasting Luther's generosity in helping Delgado, meaning Lex is in a pickle and can't retaliate. After all, he doesn't want Metropolis knowing that this wasn't purely out of the goodness of his heart. Matthew Stockton, meanwhile, wants to up his game with the investigation of Clark, telling Amanda he needs to take a look around Clark's apartment. Amanda says no to illegal activity, but Stockton does it anyway, leading to him being shot dead in Clark's apartment instead of Clark, where he is mistaken for Clark by Morgan Edge's hitmen. This is another of those wonderful pieces of setup the writers have been doling out. Stockton bears a striking resemblance to Clark, enough that he was being put forth as one of the subjects for being gangbuster. So having him break into Clark's apartment to be murdered is a decent sleight of hand by the creators. It means Clark's stories being mailed in aren't the only evidence he's still around. Granted, it's as a corpse, but, you know, if people believe him to be dead, they aren't associating him with Superman's disappearance. Granted, they pull off pretty much the same trick in the return of Superman's story a few years hence. But if something works, recycle it. These subplots show just how much care and attention was given to the supporting cast in these stories, and it's something sadly missing today. Every one of these characters were interesting, and I found that I didn't even care that Superman was only in half of these issues, the other half being devoted to the other characters. The transition between the writers, Jerry Ordway and Roger Stern, is seamless, and the art by Kerry Gamble, Ordway, Brett Breeding and Dennis Janke is striking. This second arc to this story, Superman's Soul Searching, comes to a conclusion in Superman issue 30 and Adventures of Superman issue 453, which serve as a capper to the emotionally compromised Superman and then start to kick off the next phase of the storyline, Gladiator Superman. Issue 30 by Stern, Gamble and Janke alone is one of the best issues of the arc. Hell, it's one of my favourite Superman stories ever. 
Abandoning most of the B or C plots, the story focuses purely on Superman and is all the better for it for this issue. The subplots and supporting cast dynamics are fascinating and well done, but a Superman-centric story is long overdue. In this story, Superman finds a world that seems perfect for his needs, uninhabited but fertile. He starts ploughing the land, scattering his seed, not like that, and irrigating his crops. All seems perfect until a wild monsoon, unlike any he has previously encountered, tours through the land and renders all his hard work asunder. Realising this is a regular occurrence, Superman leaves, saddened and even lonelier. This is an achingly beautiful man versus nature story, in which even a Superman learns that in such a battle, man tends to come off second best. The heartbreak of him seeing his land ripped apart is palpable, and his frustrations real. This is what the rebooted Superman did best. It made him a character with feelings and frailties, hopes and dreams, as well as powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. These frustrations see Superman lash out at an asteroid storm, something that has potentially devastating consequences as his breathing apparatus is damaged. This leads into Adventures of Superman issue 453, whereby an oxygen-starved Superman starts hallucinating. He sees visions of the Phantom Zone criminals he executed in his head, taunting him, mocking his choices, and forcing him to confront those decisions. Like a darker, more cerebral take on the junkyard fight in Superman 3, Superman realises he needs to accept all the parts of himself. He needs the gangbuster side. He needs to be decisive. He needs the Superman side to temper that anger. And he needs the Clark Kent side, which allows him to be human. It's another great issue by Ordway and Janke. It delves deep into Superman's psyche, allowing him to look at himself. It's well orchestrated, well told. It's also too little, too late. With his apparatus broken and empty, Superman passes out and is scooped up by a passing starship. There are some subplots, mostly revolving around Matrix. With Clark still believed to be dead, the Kents are struggling as people want to speak to them regarding his whereabouts. Matrix, who started as a non-gender-specific proto-matter, assumed the form of a supergirl who looked like Lana Lang, now changes her form to resemble Clark Kent. The Lex Luthor plot, however, is handled differently. Lex is given a four-part backup strip called Hostile Takeover, running through Superman issue 30 and 31, and Adventures of Superman 453 and 454. It's a testament to the skilled writing of this era of Superman, the story about insider trading featuring only Lex is as fascinating as it is, as Lex makes his bid to gain control of Star Labs. This is a corporate greed storyline. Lex doesn't really want Star Labs, he just doesn't want competition, so he plots to buy it out, a plot that belies his real intentions, the ownership of one of Star Labs' old research facilities. The confidence of the creatives at this point that they would devote backup strips to the series' main villain is compounded only by their confidence in attempting an issue that doesn't even have Superman in it. Superman issue 31 is just such an issue. 
Mr. Mix's Piddlick returns from the fifth dimension to bother Superman with his inanity. But with Superman out in space, it's left to Luther to defeat Mixie on his own terms. Luther fights Mixie in a way Superman never would. He cheats. It's captivating and entertaining to watch Luther have to deal with Mixie, and it shows how great the characters were that an entire issue is devoted to the main series bad guy and his hubris, egotism and, yes, intelligence that make for a captivating read. There's a brief teaser for Act 3, Gladiator Superman, which takes place in Adventures of Superman issue 454, and basically sets up Superman has been kidnapped against his will and is on his way to War World, and drafted into fighting in gladiatorial combat for the entertainment of Mongol. It's a familiar plot, both from historical epics like Spartacus to other superhero tales like World War Hulk, but the familiar can be developed into a top-notch story when handled creatively. More dominoes continue to fall in the subplots, which sees Matrix arrive in Metropolis, disguised as Clark Kent, and Amanda McCoy tell Maggie Sawyer that it was Matthew Stockton who died in Clark's apartment. The writers are moving all the pieces into place for an epic Act 3, which kicks off for real in Action Comics Annual Number 2, a jamboree by creators Jerry Ordway, Roger Stern, George Perez, Mike Mignola, John Statmer, Brett Breeding and Kurt Swan, which led directly into Superman issues 32 and 33, and Adventures of Superman issue 455 and 456, whereby Kerry Gamble, Dan Jurgens, Dennis Yanke and Art T. Burr provided the art. In a text piece in this annual, Perez says this was a gangbang story session, hence everyone being credited at some point. The annual, though, was the first issue in this run in which I was disappointed. One of the failings of many online reviewers is that they review things because of what they aren't, rather than what they are. And I hate that, but I'm going to do it anyway. See, I wanted this to be Planet Hulk. Superman battling and defeating bigger and stronger opponents, all the while refusing to kill. Now, I get some of that, but I also get a lot of talky exposition about some dude called Cleric, the Eradicator, and endless backstory about Krypton's various wars, primarily concerning Cleric's anti-science views and Rao's more scientific philosophy. As with most real-life disagreements of this type, both sides are right and wrong, and most of the differences could be ironed out with talk, compromise, and a level-headed approach. Sadly, on Krypton, intolerance won out, leading to a brutal civil war in which Cleric was forced to leave the planet with the Eradicator. Cleric has now learned of Superman's existence, and through a mental link, Superman learns things about Krypton he never knew, while simultaneously defeating Mongols champion Draga in final conflict. Following this, Superman and Mongol get into it, delivering the requisite fisticuffs this storyline has been missing, focusing, as it did, for so long on character. I'll be honest, I miss the character work, but this is heroic fiction, so mindless pummeling is a requirement of the genre. Mongol thinks he's disintegrated the Man of Steel. However, Cleric has in fact transported Superman to his ship, where he explains the Eradicator to Superman. The Eradicator works via visualisation, and with it, Superman makes peace with his issues and restores his costume. Mongol, meanwhile, is very annoyed that killing Superman was taken from him, and even more so that Draga has turned on him. Draga scores a victory, leading Mongol to flee. Draga is certain all three will meet again.
With Cleric's works done, he passes away. Because, you know, his purposes in the plot are completed, and Superman visualises Earth. Whilst this is the meat of the story, it's the subplots that are still trotting along at the side that develop nicely. Matrix, as Clark, has been found by Jimmy, who believes his friend to be suffering some kind of amnesia, maybe after an attack by Intergang. Lois learns that Cat Grant was Clark's source on the Intergang story, and takes over as writer on the Intergang expose. Cat's boss and lover, Morgan Edge, learns Grant was Kent's informer, and via his real boss, Darkseid, orders a hit on Kent and Lois Lane using Darkseid technology. It's too much for Gangbuster and the Special Crimes Unit. If Metropolis ever needed a Superman, it's now. But that was pretty much the end of Superman in Exile, a rip-roaring adventure that shows just what comics can do. It's very easy and very old man of me to say comics aren't like this anymore. But they aren't. Readers of this era are given a sumptuous meal every issue, with plots, counterplots, setups for stories well in the future, building off stories from way back in the past, and you could afford to buy all of the Superman titles and still probably have changed from $10. We're expected to remember these multiple plot strands, a vast array of characters, their interrelationships, the backgrounds and comprehensive mythology. All these characters and their dynamics make this the closest version to a superhero soap opera since the 60s Spider-Man strips. And you know what? It was fantastic. Now, I know what you're thinking. And you're right. You can't leave it there, you're thinking. What happened to Lois? Well, okay. There's an epilogue in Action Comics issue 643, written and drawn by George Perez and inked by Brett Breeding. Superman on Earth is a balls-out, swaggering action issue in which Superman returns just in time to save Lois and Jose from the dark side robot Turmoil. It's beautifully paced, with double-page spreads and action beats that are satisfying and triumphant, and it culminates with Morgan Edge suffering a heart attack, wrapping up the intergang story. It's a beautiful issue, with stunning art, great little character beats, like Superman missing his own shower, and his palpable anger at Edge's reckless actions. The Matrix story is wrapped up in the issue afterwards. But to hear a conversation about that... Check out Michael Bailey's It All Comes Back to Superman. Superman in Exile is available as an omnibus edition if you wish to read it for yourselves. As for me, I think I'll carry on reading these comics. After all, Brainiac is coming up and Day of the Krypton Man and Maxima and Crisis of the Crimson Kryptonite and Dark Knight over Metropolis and The Secret Room. Did you know that Michael Bailey hosts a podcast. Yeah, I host or co-host a number of podcasts, actually. Did you know that Michael Bailey releases his podcast through the dark web? Now, that's not true at all. I release my shows on the regular internet. I don't even know how to get to the dark web. Did you know that Michael's financing comes from shady donors who make up a cabal of people that like to kick puppies and kittens? What are you talking about? I'm pretty much self-financed outside of a modest Patreon that I produce no extra content Did for. you know that Michael Bailey supports free podcasts for everyone 
and also works on his shows with potential foreign spies and anarchists? Of course I support free podcasts for everyone. And Andy isn't a spy of any kind. Bethany and Allison are hardly anarchists. And Jeff... Okay, you may have me there. Jeff is a little out there. Why would you support such a man by listening to his podcast? All right, that's enough of that. Can we, can we get rid of creepy voice guy? He, he's not working out. He really just isn't. You can't get rid of me that easily. I'm a scary voice that is meant to frighten people into... Okay, okay, that's, that's better. Hey everyone, my name is Michael Bailey, and I run the Fortress of Baileytude Podcasting Network. The Fortress is a collection of podcasts that I either host or co-host, all housed in a single place to make things easier on me. The shows in the network include From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which I host with Jeffrey Taylor, and is all about the Superman books published between 1986 and 2006. The Overlooked Dark Knight, a non-index index show, which is a Batman podcast that is about Batman stories hardly anyone talks about that I host with Andrew Leyland. Views from the Long Box, my comics-centric podcast that has been online since 2007. And the newest show on the network, The Superman and Lois Tapes, which I host with Allison and Bethany and is all about the CW series Superman and Lois. The network can be found at www.fortressofbailytude.com, which also houses one of the web's largest repositories of information on the death and return of Superman from 1992 and 1993. You can subscribe to any of these programs through Apple Podcasts slash iTunes or through your favorite podcatcher, either a la carte or through the Master Feed, which has all of the episodes of all of the shows. The Fortress and its shows are also on Spotify if you're into that sort of thing. The Fortress of Baileytude Podcasting Network. Doing my best to relieve boredom since 2007. The music on this trailer, Delay Rock, and Political Action Ad are by Kevin McLeod and are used under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license. Did you know? Oh, shut up! I'm not a spy, as far as you know. I'd be a terrible spy if you knew about it, wouldn't I? Okay, shall we fondle our email sack? Our first email tonight is from Matt Prather. Hey, Andrew. Hey, Matt. Been a little while since I emailed in. Not sure what has forestalled my comments. Just know that you are appreciated. It's lovely to be appreciated. Spider buggy. What can I say? I did appreciate the inclusion of said super vehicle in the Spider-Man Deadpool crossover series, but really have no idea why it happened once, much less keeps returning. The man from Uncle I've enjoyed over the years. The original version was fun and well worth rewatching, in my opinion. I even enjoyed the theatrical reason of recent times. I enjoyed the film. Oh, the film was okay. It takes a special talent to rob Henry Cavill of his natural charm, doesn't it? I saw that Spider-Man number one offering from Marvel a while back picking up World's Finest 2 and honestly couldn't bring myself to buy it. I've been away from Spidey's adventures for a while now and J.R. Jr. was not enough to sell me on dipping my toe back in. Thank you for taking the time to dive in for me. As much as I love your Spider-Man coverage, you're appreciated for all your efforts, introducing me to new works or rekindling old loves. Thank you. Thanks, Matt Prather. P.S. Hulk Grand Design was fun. Check it out if you get the chance. That has just been solicited, Matt, as a treasury edition. So if I'm going to get it, that's going to be where it comes, as a treasury. Because who doesn't love a treasury? 
Uh, the only other email tonight is from Rob McCarthy. Hey, Andy. Hello, Rob. Man, that Spider-Man with Jigsaw is very much the perfect pre-1982 new X-Men story. I.e. it's 1978 and we're plugging Nightcrawler into the story, which used Wolverine for in 1987. No, Jigsaw was not very interesting, but now he's Marvel's most interesting character. The guy the Punisher never quite kills. What's his Saturday like? It's a very, I don't know what any of his days of the week are like, to be brutally honest. Anyway, guys, girls, and everything else, uh, that's it for this week. Or oh, this time. Um, that implies that I'm weekly, doesn't it? I will return with more next time. A couple of irons in the fire at the moment. Primarily, I've been re-watching the 1980s Max Headroom TV show. So that may bubble to the surface next. Who can say? I'll see you all real soon. Take care. Everything's going to be fine. Goodbye.